when you combine a series of solutions like SIM and SOAR and UEBA, it gets you a bigger picture of what's going on, but you still need to be able to do something about the data that you're seeing. And so one of the challenges that we have found is that when it comes to IR specifically, it's difficulty in prioritizing. It's difficult in trying to address the things that have the most critical concern and making sense of those and then letting the benign stuff go to the wayside. Howdy, y'all, and welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast. That's Tommy Todd, Vice President of Security at Code42, formerly with Symantec, Ionic Security, and Acuvent. Yes, he's a vendor, and no, Code42 did not sponsor this show. Tommy is one of my vendor buddies whom I brought onto the show because he has some great insights on the topic I've been wanting to tackle for a while, which is the importance of the modern tech stack to play well with others. Tommy and I are having a great conversation on the subject, and I think the vendor perspective on this one is rather vital. Tommy, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Yeah, thanks for having me today. Welcome to the Cyber Ranch Podcast, recorded under the big blue skies of Texas, where one CISO explores the cybersecurity landscape with the help of friends and experts. Here's your host, Alan Alford. All right, so why don't you tell us a little bit about your background in cyber and a little bit about your day job? Sure, yeah. So I've got a little over 20 years of experience in cybersecurity, primarily focused on the data privacy and data protection concern, uh, both for consumers and for corporations. So I do a little bit of both as far as you know, public speaking engagements, really helping organizations try to solve their data protection challenges. As a VP of security here at Code42, I serve as a representative of our insider risk investigation team, and I report directly to our CISO. For those of you who don't know, Code42 is a leading solution provider for insider risk management. Uh, and we do help organizations with their data protection and, and concerns around insider risk. As far as what I do uh, on the day-to-day, you know, I work with our sales organization, our marketing group. I also work a little bit with our competitive intel and our industry research teams, really to provide those field insights based on executive interactions outside of Code 42. Uh, and as you mentioned, you know, I've worked for several different types of companies in the security space. And prior to Code 42, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time primarily around encryption, data protection companies, and as you mentioned, the partner community, really to help organizations build out their successful data protection programs. Awesome. And by the way, the CISO at Code42 is J.D. Hansen, who happens to be a super awesome human being. I know J.D., and right. she's really neat, too. I, I've, you're, 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 you're lucky, in my opinion, to get to work with her. I hope that's your opinion as well. Oh, yeah. It's definitely <laughs> been a good experience working with her. Yep, she's, she's awesome. All right. So let's talk a little bit here about you know what we're trying to get into. We're, we're talking about overall the fact that we've got challenges both staffing and maintaining roles in cyber. And some people are bringing up the great resignation and some people are bringing up the fact that there's just a shortage and there's a million and one descriptions and categories and, and slicing and dicing of how people are describing the problem. But let's let's try to codify the problem here in one simple statement. There's not enough cyber bodies and there's more cyber work than there are bodies. So whatever you think the cause of that is, that that's our premise. So the first question I've got for you then is how can APIs help solve our need for automation, right? We talk about automation as a great means of overcoming a lack of human talent. Uh, automate where you can. You need less human uh, cycles. But not every product offers an API. What about all these in-house solutions? So how does API start to help us? And, and what about all these places and spaces where API isn't natively there? 
Yeah, great questions. You know, it, it's been my experience that the more flexible and comprehensive the APIs provided by your vendors are, the more useful the integrations become. You know, we talk a lot about automation and being able to streamline a lot of those workflows. Uh, and as a result, this is why a lot uh, more and more organizations are evaluating solutions that it has a requirement that must play well with others. Um, so this is really a, a thing that keeps coming up over and over again. We're looking at APIs as kind of a a solution towards the resource shortages that we seem to have, right? Being able to automate a lot of our controls, being able to automate a lot of our responses, uh, and really trying to consolidate a lot of our policies. A lot of these technologies operate in a silo where we're dealing with you know, multiple types of policies, a lot of redundancies that could be consolidated and collapsed. And so having these integrations between solutions enables the business to have a more streamlined approach to implementing these types of controls. Uh, you know, and in my opinion, any vendor that's not providing a decent set of APIs is really reducing their value to the modern security strategy. Uh, as I mentioned before, these are a core requirement for solution investments. Yep. You know, when it comes to in-house types of solutions, this is really a, an area that we're seeing a lot of changes, a lot of evolution from an organizational perspective. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that we are having a shortage of resources. And with the great resignation, a lot of these people that were responsible for supporting in-house solutions have since exited. So you end up in this brain drain condition where we've got a product that becomes stale because there's no one left to support it, no one left to continue to develop on it. And as a result of those limitations, a lot of times organizations are seeking solutions to be able to displace those, or at the very least, trying to investigate how can we retrofit these applications to be more open to integrations. Right. We've got this massive ecosystem. We want to take advantage of that. Yep. So that, yeah, the retrofitting gets really interesting to me. And I want to state too, I, you know, your, your comment about, you know, if you don't have the API, you're getting yourself in trouble, you're doing a disservice to your customers. My day job, we're, we're not even in the tech stack side of the house. We're aggressively working on API projects right now as we speak. Even in the non-tech stack space, integration and API, I think is super, super critical. We're all over that in the day job for the, for the same reason. Like we, we just want to add more value. We perceive that as being a natural linkage. But you mentioned here kind of how, you know, you're going to evaluate these security products. They better have an API. If they don't, we're in trouble, et cetera. And that gets me to thinking about the POC cycles. Integrations testing is very deep and can take some real time. And a traditional POC doesn't leave you a lot of time for that. So if the new, if the new assumption, if, if the new normal, if you will, is that our products are all API integratable and offer APIs in and out and whatever, you know, kinds of combinations you need to make this thing talk to that thing then to do a POC and to drop a new product into your shop is to also say, oh, and by the way, I'm not just testing your product. I'm going to be plugging it into this one, that one, that one, and the other one. And I have to test the integrations and the interactivity between all four of these other products. How do you pull that off in a POC context? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're right. That is kind of the holy grail. If you really want to maximize the value of a proof of concept or what we call a proof of value, then you're going to need some kind of a solution that can integrate easily into your existing ecosystem. And I've noticed that what we're starting to see is a lot more vendors are putting some funding and some research and you know, really aligning resources into that strategic alliance model, meaning that you've got vendor-to-vendor -vendor relationships, you've got these integrations that are out of the box, so they've been well-tested, you know, you've got a lot of support from different vendors, maybe you've got you know, vendor playbooks that exist as far as a SOAR product is concerned. So the idea mm -hmm. being that these out-of-the-box out of integrations make it easier to evaluate these integrations during a POC without really extending the length of the POC, where you have to do a lot of configuration, a lot of, you know, a lot of changes, trying to try to get this thing to just jam it in and work. That's not really the right approach. We want to have these things from day one. We can say we can do all these things very easily. All we need to do is point to these different environments and we can mm -hmm. make it happen. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, when you consider that most POC POVs run roughly 30 to 60 days, right. if the solution that you're evaluating is simple enough with minimal change control, then you can put more time towards making sure these integrations work successfully. So it kind of you know has a trade-off, right? You want to make sure that you're investing in a solution that's got a lot of integration capabilities, but is also very easy to use and easy to consume so that you're not spending a lot of cycles trying to get right. these things up and running just to be able to evaluate it. Yeah, there's your holy grail for sure. That was the phrase you used. And I'm sitting here thinking of how often, you know, because even by definition, the more APIs you offer to connect to more other aspects of your of your tech stack, the less simple you are. By definition, the more API you offer, the less easy to use you are, right? Like it's it's a conundrum. At some point, there's a diminishing returns of, oh, yeah, this product, uh, you can drop it in your shop and it'll talk to all 127 possible <laughs> tools you have. But, you know, good luck POC in that. Right. So there's a there's a trade-off there for sure. And I, you know, part of me feels like, you know, and, and you mentioned SOAR, and I'm just gonna completely deviate here and, and thought, you know, I'm thinking of Sticks Taxi, for example, mm-hmm. where there's this standard that was agreed to both for what the data format should be and what the data protocol, you know, transmission protocol should be. And I would love to see some sort of crazy free for everybody super special API glue that we can all start to use and that every product starts to talk and share. And and you know what I mean? Like all these places in your shop where you want to integrate and automate and tap this API into that API or call this one or talk to that one, push, pull, whatever it might be. I'm envisioning this world of a grand centralized, you know, API framework, if you will, where where we can all, all vendors can just tap into that. And then there it is for free. I, I you know, that'll never happen, but oh my goodness, wouldn't that be the thing that solved that? You know, it, it probably, you're right. It will it'll never be free, but we do see more and more vendors collaborating like that. Mm-hmm. I, I know prior to coming to Code 42, when I work at Symantec, we had this idea and this concept of, look, we're a great intelligence type service. You know, we've got more product out there that can actually collect a bunch of data from all these different endpoints. Why can't other vendors take advantage of that? Right. Let's all get better together as a cybersecurity space rather mm-hmm. than trying to be siloed as a vendor saying, no, nope, we're only going to do it our way or the highway. And, and not really take advantage of other capabilities that technology that might be more mature has available. So I, I totally right. agree with you. I think that, you know, that vendor to vendor relationship is, is critical when it comes to investigating. Like if I were an organization looking at a new product, I'd look for like how long you've been in the space, what kind of maturity do you have, who do you work with? You know, yeah. we might have made you work with? millions yeah. of dollars worth of investments. We want to take advantage of that by bringing in your solution. So right. these are all definitely good questions. Yeah, at the, at the day job, what we're trying to do is basically develop a very neutral API foundation and then one by one begin plugging into other entities and trying to, you know what I mean? Like that's the approach we're taking that the first code we wrote was that generic pipeline, if you will. And now we're coding the best that travel through it on a per other company basis kind of, you know, that's kind of the approach at the day job. We'll, We'll see how well it pans out. I'm banking on that strategy. So leaving POC now and getting into the actual purchase, one of the things I've been seeing is a lot of companies are really starting to rationalize their tech stack. They're starting to reduce solutions down. And I think you even had a formula in your mind of, you know, take take X products and see if you can reduce it to Y products. Uh, what's your golden formula and how does that tie into this, um, again, this lack of human cycles and, you know, the desire to automate more? If we're reducing, are we actually improving automation? You know, what's your what's your whole take on the tech stack rationalization as it fits this this whole narrative? Yeah, another great question, right? And it's been my experience that as a result of remote work, you know, the great resignation, we're dealing with you know shrinking security resources. You know, as, as I like to think, we had a negative three percent growth rate in cybersecurity before the pandemic, and that's only been you know even worse now that we are in the middle of the pandemic. So the shrinking of security resources and budgets has forced organizations to try to figure out a way to collapse and consolidate their security stack. 
And what we've started to notice is that it used to be a one-to-one strategy. If I was displacing a particular product with another, it was kind of a one-to-one replacement. What we're actually finding now is it's more of a two-to-three-to-one replacement. So mm-hmm. we're actually seeing two to three products being wiped out on, you know, on behalf of a single installation or single investment. And, and when you think about the types of, of core solutions that are generally fall within the spectrum, you know, traditional legacy products like, you know, CASBs and DLPs, you know, there's a lot of redundancies there in the way that these two products work when it comes to enforcing data protection strategies. Mm-hmm. If I could knock mm-hmm. out both of those products with a single product that does both. That's in my interest to do that, right? I'm, I'm right. shrinking two solutions, two consoles down to one. Yep, yep. And so these types of, of strategies are becoming more prevalent. And then when we combine that with the fact that a lot of these legacy technologies don't support the automation and the integrations that we are you know, coming to expect out of new solutions, mm-hmm. it gives mm-hmm. us another reason to displace those because maybe we need to replace things that no longer are in alignment with our collaborative culture. So right. there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of things being taken into consideration. And then finally, when we think about the in-house solutions, you know, we already mentioned the fact that a lot of times uh, companies are struggling to manage these in-house solutions because they're they're lacking resources. The people that built these these solutions that supported these solutions are no longer with the company, and so it's kind of forced the company's hand into saying, "All right, what is out there that we can get off the shelf that can replace this in-house solution so that we get the vendor support that we need?" And we're not having to rely on resources that might come and go. We now have somebody we can hold accountable in case something breaks. So. We're starting to see a lot of that in-house swapping out too. People are starting to realize that there's a new day. Maybe some stuff that we can get off the shelf is a little better than what we built in-house and let me take a look at that instead. Mm -hmm. That's good stuff. That's real good stuff. Let's pause right there and hear a brief word from our sponsor. Axonius has crossed the chasm, the first company to solve the cybersecurity asset management problem. Gartner has recognized cyber asset attack surface management chasm as a category in their hype cycle for network security 2021 report. Axonius gives its customers a comprehensive, always up-to-date asset inventory, helps uncover security gaps, and automates as much of the manual remediation as you want. Take a look at Axonius and give your team's time back to work on the high-value cyber initiatives they were trained to do. You and I both work at, at vendors, essentially. We're both on the security vendor side of the house. So it's easy for us to talk about these kinds of problems and then turn around and say, you know, we as a company are solving these problems in our product and blah, blah, blah. But that in-house development, I, I worked in a very big shop uh, right before this vendor. I was in a very large shop. And there were lots and lots and lots of nooks and crannies of that company where something had been developed completely in-house. And to your point of, oh, you know, I got a choice of three, whatever. We'll keep using Casby and DLP as examples. I got a choice of five or six products in, in the market that, that may do one only or both or neither or either or overlap slightly or whatever. But then I can also evaluate them all in terms of their API, their integration with the rest of the world. And then I turn around and look at my own proprietary in-house stuff. It's like, uh, that's got no API. <laughs> and I can't just check the box and say, replace it with this new thing on the market because it was written in-house for a reason. It was a niche need, Right. That's a whole can of worms there of how do you how do you maintain because I you know I've never worked in a shop that didn't have at least that one application. It's always at least one that was written by that guy that was the guy for like 15 years but then he finally left the company and now this legacy remains of the guy's product that he wrote, you know, and and no one knows how it works. It's a black box. As long as the server stays up and running, everything seems to be okay. But everyone's like, what happens if it goes down one day? We don't know. You know, that scenario, you're never going to have a clean API for that. And you have to get into wrappers right. and all kinds of shenanigans there that just, you know, that's that's a whole other conversation for another show is how do you wrap, 
right? How right. do you wrap API around legacy, around, you know, vendor you like for all reasons, but API, code you wrote in-house, whatever it might be. That's that's probably a topic for a whole other show. <laughs> Let's switch gears here. When we talk about tech stack rationalization, another place that I always think about, and, and this is just a, a soft spot, sweet to my heart is always the incident response team, right? Those guys are in the corner, just like GRC. You know, even GRC is seeing automation. GRC is seeing integration. GRC is seeing API. Like, that used to be the group we thought of as being neglected when tech stack conversations came along. GRC is actually doing okay now. But incident right. response, boy golly, if you look at anything beyond SOAR, if you look beyond, you know, like like I had a, I had a guest on my show a while back, and we were talking about how far can you push SOAR in terms of benefiting uh, incident response. And I know his answer, but I'm curious to hear yours because this isn't a topic I'm going to hammer on with every guest I can. You know, how do we automate incident response? What's lacking? How do you integrate it better with the tech stack? How do you solve that lack of human cycles problem on the IR side of the house? And that that is uh, another one of those holy grail questions, right? It's how do we get to that utopian state of, you know, reducing the burden of the security uh, resource that has to go out and do the investigations and try to figure out and make sense of all this noise that our environment creates. And when you combine a series of solutions like SIM and SOAR and UEBA, it gets you a bigger picture of what's going on, but you still need to be able to do something about the data that you're seeing. Mm -hmm. And so one of the challenges that we have found is that when it comes to IR specifically, it's difficulty in prioritizing. It's difficult in trying to address the things that have the most critical concern and making sense of those, and then letting the benign stuff go to the wayside, or at least handling that in a more automated fashion so that your human element can actually focus on things that truly matter in the organization. And we see this time and again and with, with different uh, degrees of, of incident response. You know, there's different ways you can perceive it, right? There's uh, maybe I'm dealing with a firewall situation or an IPS or an IDS situation, or maybe even insider risk. A number of different ways that incidents can be created in the environment. Being able to prioritize what matters most so that I can address those quickly is crucial. Now, when we talk about automation and how do we address some of the non-egregious things that we see in the environment, you know, just give you some, some anecdotal evidence of ways that automation can help with some of these. When we think about a response and what that typically looks like, it doesn't always have to be a technical response. Mm -hmm. We think about the non-egregious type activities that we typically see from our end users. You know, they might be making mistakes. We're all human beings. You know, we're dealing with tool consumption at, a, at an accelerated rate where we're being exposed to cloud-related tools. We're getting new devices. We're being told different things. We're working from home. We're going to make mistakes that are going to trigger alarms and create incidents in the organization. Yep. So being able to automate the way you respond in a non-technical way it, through like something like a micro-training could be the response that's necessary. But triggering that in an automated way is the challenge. Mm. And, I, you know, just kind of walk you through what that would typically look like. An incident's created in a platform. It generates an education response. It communicates the intent to the end user. Hey, we saw what you did. Here's why it's bad. Here's what you need to do to improve your behavior. And then, you know, they get trained in the moment. And I'm not saying that this particular concept can be applied to every single incident that occurs, right? right? You can't really do that with a firewall incident. But right. when you consider the bulk of the things that we try to address are surrounding the data concern, this yep. is probably a good way to look at it. Yep. And so um, the idea being that from a security practitioner perspective, the value that this brings for me is the fact that as part of this microtraining aspect, I get the attestations that I need to say, I've, you've been trained, you've agreed to the training. Now, if you continue to be a repeat offender, now I can ratchet up my response. Right. So, right. you know, but it eliminates about 84% of an analyst workload when you automate just the simplest of things so that yeah. you can free that person up to focus on things that truly matter, really the things that require investigating. I like that. And I, I love the fact that your insider threat model is presuming 
non-hostile insider threat, right? That's and that's such a refreshing take. So many so many folks in the insider threat space go straight to malicious insider. Yeah. And what you're saying is, hey, this this could quite possibly be accident. And I would argue the vast majority of insider threats are in fact accidental. It's somebody doesn't realize they're doing the bad thing, and here you are saying, nope, pop up training. You know, here's your moment, and you're coaching and, and walking them through. That's a great response. I've seen SOAR too. Uh, used in other similar contexts for incident response comes in, and let's say it's something a little more tech stack. Let's say it's more of a malware than a than a than a than an insider threat. Uh, you could capture the evidence and upload it to VirusTotal. Right. You could send an email and trigger somebody else on the such and such team to go look at the such and such product. Like that that next level API. What what I want to see is that that mythical engine I envisioned of of the API that glues this all together. Wouldn't it be cool if SOAR was sort of that and actually spoke to the tech stack and could push the buttons and pull the triggers? And I used to work at another vendor. I was a CISO at a security vendor that specialized in taking SIM and UABA and instead of applying it to the a SOC, applied it directly to the tech stack to flip controls, right? Yeah. That was their whole principle and their whole paradigm. And, and I thought the vision was sound. I thought they were heading the right place. And I think that ties into this conversation, but it needs to be bigger than all that, right? To your point, it's got to incorporate um, micro learnings. It's got to incorporate tech stack. It's got to incorporate even what I mentioned earlier, GRC. Like, like we, need, we need this automated glue everywhere. I'm excited to see you guys are working on that. And if you think about SOAR in and of itself, it's designed to be an orchestrated solution, meaning mm-hmm. the whole idea is to orchestrate the response. Right. So to your point, you know, we, there's a strategy we like to call the contain, resolve, educate response. And containment is just that. If an incident is created, we want to contain the hemorrhaging. We want to stop right. it from happening. Right. Or at least put the brakes on it until we can investigate. So leveraging a technical control through a SOAR to maybe, you know, leverage your EDR to shut off the network capabilities right. and turn down the, you know, device control and application control so right. that we put the brakes on that. That end user. Yep. And then that gives your security team some breathing room to understand mm-hmm. what happened, right? Was this really egregious? Is it not? Is it just a mistake? Was this a, right. maybe an education opportunity? But being able to, to trigger that response automatically through an incident that gets generated is the first step in getting us halfway there, you know, because yeah. we're, we're pumping the brakes. Yep. Uh, and the idea being, and I like to use this anecdote because it really resonates from the human experience. If you're driving down the highway and you see a cop sitting on the side of the road, you're going to hit the brakes. It's a behavior mm-hmm. change, right? Even if there's not a cop sitting in the car, you're still going to hit the brakes. It's a human condition. So if you you know, educate your users and make them aware of this type of a security response, hopefully they're going to use judgment which will reduce your, your, you know, your risk over time on its own without mm-hmm. relying on these technical controls. So there's a side benefit to having this kind of capability. I like that. I like that a lot. All right, so cool. So you and I are heading down the same path with SOAR, sort of this mother, this mothership API paradigm. SOAR could be the core of that. We're both in agreement there. We've got microlearnings for the humans. We've already talked about some GRC-type integrations with my day job. We've talked about tech stack integrations with your day job. Uh, we're looking good there. So let's step back from all that a little bit. And talk about other general automation tips to like take the load off the team. Like let's, you know, we we've talked about API quite a bit here. Stepping back, what other kinds of automations might be there to take a load off the team in terms of responses, scheduling, program management? Like I'm thinking of all, all the other facets of the team where again automation has not historically been the solution, right? Like, how do you automate project management? I don't know, but maybe you've got a great idea. Yeah, you know, it, it really does come down to that automation of workflows. And being able to institute these in a variety of different ways. Um, from a security perspective, some of the biggest challenges we have are onboarding and offboarding. 
you know, bringing new people into the organization, getting them trained up so that they know what they're doing and they're not going to make a lot of mistakes. And then offboarding, making sure that they're not taking anything when they leave or doing something nefarious as part of their exit strategy. Mm-hmm. So being able to automate a lot of these workflows, it, what it does for you is it, it kind of helps you with the communication path. Because too oftentimes I see, you know, security doesn't talk to HR or security doesn't talk to legal or security doesn't talk to the, the GRC team. You know, there's these silos of communication. So having automated workflows to initiate a lot of that correspondence and communication can help kind of keep it all straight, keep it all together and keep it timely. Uh, a lot of times what we see is there's a bit of a lag period because there isn't really yeah. good communication happening because there is no automated way. Yeah, so, yeah, for example, yeah. Somebody gets flagged in my people system where they get flagged as departing. There's a whole workflow that needs to happen automatically behind the scenes to reduce the workload on people like security and HR, you know, people that have to rely on educating the end user to say, hey, okay, in your two-week window, here's what we need you to be doing. Imagine if we could automate that education response. So now the user gets maybe a little one to two minute video. You're leaving the company. Here's things that you should do. Here's things you shouldn't do. And you're being observed. Takes that burden away from the security professional to have to do that manually. So that's mm-hmm. just one example of ways we can kind of improve the state just by doing you know things like automated workflows. Yeah, um, and really it comes down to decision making and being able to escalate with the proper levels of data. I think one of the other challenges we have is when decisions need to be made about how to respond to something, we do it without the right level of confidence. Mm-hmm. Right? We do it maybe because we perceive the data we're seeing as ooh this could be truly malicious because of these types of actions. When the reality is it's just somebody trying to do their job. So making informed decision making, but having the right amount of visibility through that automated integration piece, right? I'm looking at my my platform, I'm looking at my SIM, I'm looking at my UBA, I'm making sense of all this because I have that correlated data point, then I can make some decisions with confidence. So yeah, yeah, examples. Yeah, yeah, I like that. And you talk about the integrations with HR as well. And I'm, you know, I'm picturing that again, identity and access management being sort of at the core of all things, you know, like, this is this is just my new operating theory that identity and access management is actually secretly our most important security tool. That we all have all these solutions and and all these vendors are out there and all of us practitioners are out there. I'm I'm both. I you'll hear me say we when I'm talking about vendors or practitioners. But we have all these solutions and all these tools we think of as true pure play security tools. And and that identity at the heart of it, knowing in the first place when oh Fred just entered the company, oh Jane just exited the company, oh Sally just got a new pay raise, oh Sanjay is now in another department. You know. All those triggered events, you know, promotions and all that stuff, like it becomes so critical that all that stuff is there. Um, I totally agree. You know, and, and one final point on the MFA piece, you know, a lot of the breaches we're seeing recently are because somebody's account wasn't properly de- deprovisioned. Yes. You know, the, the person left the company three or four weeks ago and he still has access to the environment. It's like right, right. that offboarding process is so critical and it needs to be automated so that we don't miss something. But anyway, yep. I just like to accent that point about MFA because I think that's yeah. a good one. Yeah, no, no, no. Fair, fair call out for sure. So, all right. So we've talked about automation. We've talked about API. We've talked about integration. We've talked about rationalization. We've covered a lot of these topics. And at the end of the day, it was all, as we stated at the beginning, to address this notion of we don't have enough human cycles. How can we step up our game to, to offset the human cycles in these automated ways? So here's the challenging question. Here's the million dollar question at the end of it. How do we actually characterize the ROI on all this integration, automation, API, et cetera? How do we how do we go upstairs and prove, hey, listen, I spent a whole bunch of money on these cool new toys, but, but, but hear me out. <laughs> you know? What's the ROI argument? How do we, how do we sell this upstairs? Yeah. And, and, and in my opinion, the ROI can be measured in a number of different ways, right? When you start talking about integrated investments where you're taking advantage of the power of multiple vendors, 
you know, one solution might be good, but you're making it great by actually having, a, you know, taking advantage of some of the other solutions that are out there. So that, you know, the idea of consolidating, collapsing, getting more value out of your solution, right, making your money go further, because now you have a more powerful capability in your environment that you didn't have before, is a great way to measure, you know, how are we going to have this return on investment? Well, that's one good way to look at it. Um, the other way is, is think about the efficiency and the efficacy gains that you get out of that integrated and automated approach. You're reducing the resource requirements while strengthening the security organization's capabilities. So instead of having six FTEs, I might only need two because I've automated a lot of what would normally take six FTEs to run. We see this time and again where automation becomes the, the core factor in determining how many full-time employees am I going to need to manage this. And it's not that we're trying to work people out of a job. It's that we can't find good people. <laughs> you know, the, right, the, right. the workforce is tight right now. So we're having to do more with less. So if you can say, I, I am able to kind of sacrifice these six salaries because we're gaining so much efficiency out of these, these integrated solutions, that's another good number that we can use to justify these investments. You know, like on the more it. tactical level, when you think about the bilateral value between solutions, right, each solution should be complementary. We talked a little bit about this before, about how vendors are starting to open up their, their ideas a little bit and saying, you know what, I need to work with these other 10 major vendors mm -hmm. out there. I need mm -hmm. to be a player in this space in order for us to all get value, which basically means I have to have technology that can talk to each other. Right. If I'm not right. buying technology that has that capability, then, then why am I buying it? I'm just buying another silo and I'm actually spending more money than I could have if I went the other way. Right. So these are just a number of ways we can kind of look at that ROI approach when it comes to okay. investing in solutions. And I'm reminded of uh, another friend of mine, uh, another practitioner CISO. I can't remember who the heck this was shared this one with me, but we were talking about headcount and trying to justify headcount and budget. And you always go upstairs and say, I need a full-time person in Arkansas, or I need a full-time person for this and that and the other. And how oftentimes that argument falls flat. You don't get the headcount you want, et cetera. And his approach was, no, 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 break it all up by functions. Right. You don't say, I need an FTE. You say, I need about 10 hours a week on identity and access management. And I need about 20 hours a week on CASB. And I need about, you know, fill in the blank with your functionalities. Right. And and don't even call it CASB. And don't even call it identity and access management. Get into what it is behind the scenes. What does CASB do for us? What, you know, don't, don't call it the tech stack tool, CASB. You know, what are we doing? Protecting access into and out of the cloud. Ah, okay. And you list these functions, and then you go and ask for your headcount based on the functions. And so you can very quickly justify and explain upstairs as you're charting your headcount. And you can say, hey, I told you I needed these seven functions. That ends up being three and a half heads. You guys are only saying I can hire two heads. So look at all the functions that don't get done, like period, end of discussion. This is You're picking and choosing what you value in terms of the functions the organization cares about, and, and that helps with your, your argument for headcount. I'm now picturing overlaying the entire tech stack on that exact same paradigm. And mashing it up into one giant spreadsheet and saying, you know, protecting insider threat equals, oh, it's only X hours a week of this human, but that's because it's uh, X thousands of dollars for this tool. Uh, right. Identity and access management, X hours of human, X thousands of dollars for tool, et cetera, et cetera. And go through your functionality, controlling access into and out of cloud, da 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 And suddenly you're buying tools that are filling functions as people would fill functions, and you kind of take both of those and, and take that upstairs as a collective argument. I think that would really tie into everything you just said uh, and and tidy that up into one package for the CISOs to, to hopefully get the funding they need. You, you know, and I think every vendor listening out there has probably been asked the question about their product. How many FTEs am I gonna, is it going to take to run this? Right, and, right. And invariably, the answer is always, it depends. Because mm -hmm. depending on your maturity, depending on your vision of automation and integration, you know, all of those things matter in answering that yeah. question. And it's very difficult to do so unless you truly understand what you're actually asking for. 
I, I used yep. the anecdote earlier, you know, 84% of, of an analyst's time is spent on what amounts to non-egregious activities, right? You know, mm-hmm. just the, the manual interaction. If you automate that, uh, we've actually seen figures saying that it went from an 84%, I've got my guy completely wrapped around the axle on this stuff, down to 2% of his workload focuses on that anymore because we've automated a lot of that stuff out of the equation. So it really depends on, you know, how much automation do you want? How much do you want to reduce the burden of your security team? And in my opinion, that's a better use of your skill sets anyway. You're bringing mm-hmm. a, a highly seasoned, highly professional security practitioner to bear. You don't want them wasting their time looking for mistakes. You want to automate all that, you know, let them right, focus right, on right. The things that really matter. So it's, uh, you know, it, it really comes down to, again, that depends. Um, but I really put a lot of emphasis on that automation to get you there, right? I like it. I like it. Well, we're getting to the end of the show here. I got one question I ask every guest. Tommy Todd, Vice President of Security at Code42, what is something you have learned outside of cybersecurity that has helped you in cybersecurity? Yeah, this is a great question. And, and, I, and I love thinking through how I would typically answer this. And really, my, my main experience outside of cybersecurity is that, generally speaking, people are lazy. You know, they mm. want things easier in their lives, not harder. And they strive for that in their personal lives. I mean, you think about it. We invented things like the light bulb and HVAC and ice makers and running water. We did all that for a reason. So our lives would be easier. Now, right. how I apply that to cybersecurity is that for some reason, however, we expect cybersecurity to be hard and complex. When the reality is, it doesn't have to be. Right? We, for some reason, we make it very hard on ourselves. So, and it doesn't have to be that way, right? And this is why we put a lot of focus on streamlining and automating the security experience. And as a result, we reduce the complexities and we gain those efficiencies that make our jobs easier. And that's the world I want to live in, right? I want my life to be right. easier, even in my workplace, not harder. So that's kind of one of the things that I learned coming into cyber is that, you know, you just got to remember humans are lazy and, and they're looking for the easy button. And we need to make sure that we're supplying them a solution that, that meets that criteria in, in some cases. So <laughs> I love it. I love it, man. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on down to the ranch. Thank you, listeners. Y'all be good now.